House of the Dragon Episode 3 is pretty great actually. I loved it, and not just because the writers have been appealing to my very specific love of prophecy, implied magic, dragon dreams, and now, how strong. Although that does help, thank you, Ryan, Miguel, and your entire team for making an episode that unexpectedly gave me most of my Christmas list in September. Still waiting on those Blackwoods and a particular Witch Queen, but you know what? I can wait. I found the episode in the season as a whole captivating in a way I haven't felt in a really long time watching television. I was watching the episode and live tweeting as I went, also trying to take some notes for my stream and just kinda stopped. I just wanted to watch. Although it was not all rainbows and wonder. There were a few things I'm not wild about and I'm gonna talk about those too. The episode opens with an attack on the Stepstones, Damon trying to roast the Triarchy Pirates with Caraxes but has to retreat when he's hit with an arrow. We then swing back to King's Landing where it's been three years since the last episode, and Viserys and Alicent have a son named Aegon after the Conqueror. Alicent is pregnant again, and there's to be a hunt to celebrate Aegon's birthday, or name day as they call it in Westeros. Tylen Lannister arrives, and tries to kill the mood by telling Viserys how Daemon and Corlys are on the verge of losing the Stepstones, and that they need help. Now, which Viserys ignores, and Otto backs him up in ignoring it. While Otto claims they're ignoring the war is to help Viserys save his reputation, it's actually a political move by the hand to weaken his two primary rivals at court, Damon and Corlys. With them gone, he has full control of the small council, and if either of them die fighting pirates, well, all the better. Otto, as always, uses thinly veiled reasoning to justify his extreme self-interest, which Viserys just always seems to miss. Viserys calls for Rhaenyra and can't find her. Alicent, though, finds Rhaenyra where she knows her former friend would be, sitting under the Weirwood tree, reading a book and having a bard sing to her about Queen Nymeria, kind of like he's an iPod on repeat. Rhaenyra doesn't want to go, and Alicent orders the bard to leave, pulling rank, and Rhaenyra finally unhappily agrees to go on the hunt when she's told that it is not a request, it is a royal command. There's a tense journey down to the hunt in the family minivan, where Rhaenyra is very unhappy with Viserys as it seems not much has changed between the two in these three years. The hunt itself is not merely a chance to go kill some boars and stags, which is of course always great fun. First is that it is expected by many of the lords that Viserys will give up on Rhaenyra and make his son Aegon his heir at last. It has not gonna notice in the realm that Rhaenyra continues to not be included in councils or decisions, and that the rift between her and the king has only grown. With a male heir in an unhappy current heir, they think Viserys is gonna pull the ripcord on Queen Rhaenyra, choosing to appease the Hightowers. We also see Lord Hobart Hightower commanding his younger brother to make the king do it and avoid the obvious war that they see coming. Well, of course they see it coming because they're gonna start it. The second purpose of the hunt is for the lords to capture the most dangerous game, a dragon. In this case, the dragon is Rhaenyra. Lord Jason Lannister is currently the leading candidate for her hand, the twin brother to Tywin Lannister. Although a bit dim and likes drinking wine too much and kind of a tool, the gold of Casterly Rock cannot be ignored, and the event seems largely organized to make a play for marriage. Viserys and Jason have clearly planning for this hunt to feel like a spontaneous event where Jason charms Rhaenyra, sweeps her off her feet, and the Lannisters get to have their dragon riders in exchange for their gold. When the royal party arrives at the hunting camp, Lord Hobart Hightower leads a cheer for baby Aegon, which Rhaenyra can clearly hear inside the carriage and is visibly hurt by. Rhaenyra claimed in the carriage that she didn't want to go because nobody was there for her, and that scene kind of proves that point. She walks into the main party tent of the hunt, not like the heir to the Iron Throne, but like she's crashed a party she's not invited to. No one greets her, there's not even a fuss to have her sit with any particular group. Rhaenyra is alone despite being surrounded by her future subjects. The loss of Alicent as a friend in these last years has become even more glaring, as Alicent is spotted sitting among a group of the Lord's wives including Lady Redwine, Hightower, and Lannister. Next we are introduced to maybe the most fascinating character in Fire and Blood, although you probably never know it by his entrance. Laris Strong, aka the Clubfoot, which is on purpose. Laris is a character that lives in shadows and secrecy. He listens more than he speaks things hard before doing anything, and masters being non-threatening. Laris has a club foot, which they showed off in the episode as being encased in some kind of metal shoe. We don't have to go into a lot of details about it, it basically just means for the show that he cannot walk or run well and also uses a cane. However, Laris turns his club foot into an advantage, and we see it in this episode. His abilities as a spy master are considerable even at a young age, and part of the reason you can see in moments like in this episode. Laris doesn't go on the hunt, and he blames his foot for it, and asks to listen in on the talk of the most powerful women in the realm. 
Laris takes advantage of his father's status of Master of Laws and Queen Allison agrees, Laris sitting down. But then what does he do? He listens. He absorbs all the drama of the high courts, what their children and families are up to, where the families stand on issues, who has a secret or maybe a rivalry that can be used later. And they all give this to Laris freely. This is the kind of information that Littlefinger and Varys kill for. And Laris gets it for free, unnoticed and unassuming. Actually a little bit like a green seer, and this is one of the keys to why he ends up being so influential. He sees value where no one else does, knowing that this gossip is not just idle chatter, it is extremely valuable, and will help him and his father Lionel know exactly how they can play these houses better in the future. I'm going to make a full video on Laris really breaking down his character, but there is a stream in the corner if you want to go watch it. But suffice to say, don't be like those in the tent that ignored Laris. He proves to be one of the most fascinating characters this show will have to offer and that they allow him to just slide into the show so low-key and subtly is a great sign that they know exactly how to handle the clubfoot. Rhaenyra then gets into a tiff over what she knows about the Stepstones, saying that she has no special information, nor does she have contact with Daemon. Unfortunately for Rhaenyra, the ladies were actually testing if she is still on the outside of the small council, which she confirms, and also suddenly hinting that yes, she may actually be disinherited soon as Viserys continues to treat her as a cupbearer and not the future of the realm. Lady Lannister tries to get a rise out of Rhaenyra by saying how she supplanted Daemon, but Alicent then unexpectedly comes to Rhaenyra's defense, saying how Viserys chose her as heir because she's the best for the job. Something Alicent probably actually truly believes at this point. Lady Redwine plays with her pug, which apparently exists in Westeros, and makes a snide remark about how Viserys is failing as a king to not win against a bunch of pirates. Rhaenyra snaps back, questioning what Lady Redwine has done for the cause other than eating cake, which is of course glaring as Rhaenyra herself has been ignoring her duty according to her father by not marrying. Laris takes this all in and studies the reaction of Allison and Lady Lannister to Rhaenyra's insult. Always watch Laris. He's a great tool of the show to direct you where you should be looking as well. Rhaenyra goes outside and again feels totally alone and overwhelmed. Lord Jason Lannister, previously leering at Rhaenyra across the party, now approaches the princess and tries to sell her on how big and huge Casterly Rock is, being as subtle as a hammer. The gracious Lord Jason even goes so far as to claim he built a dragon pit for Rhaenyra, who reacts poorly to the realization that this is actually a marriage proposal and that the hunt is not for wildlife, it's for her. Rhaenyra storms back into the tent and confronts Viserys about trying to sell her off her Lannister gold, and they have a screaming match in front of the entire court. Viserys claims that every lord in Westeros has made an offer for her, but she won't listen to any of them, which Rhaenyra throws back, saying that it's because she doesn't want to marry and he will not listen to her. Communication remains an issue between father and daughter. Viserys drops the bomb on her that nobody is above duty. It is her duty as a member of their house and heir to marry and continue the bloodline which in the spirit of Damon is something that is true, but not the right time to say it, Viserys. It is not something that will comfort your furious teenager. Otto breaks up the fight, surprisingly doing a good thing as the hand to let the king know that a white heart has been sighted by the royal hunters. The meaning here is explicitly laid out in the episode. A white heart is a white stag, which are known for being exceedingly rare and its appearance being taken as a good omen from the gods. Called the King of the Kingswood is an impossible to find, never mind catch or kill. Its mere sight is considered a blessing, and if you can catch one, it marks you as chosen by the divine. Also fun fact about royal hunts, the royals rarely actually do the hunting. They have professional hunters who go out ahead of the royal party and track down and corner the animal for the nobles to then swoop in and get the kill. If this all scenario sounds familiar, it's because it is. In a Game of Thrones, Robert Baratheon's infamous death by boar is during a hunt for a white heart as well. The white stag was also sighted in the Kingswood and Robert and his crew went off searching for it, believing as well in the important triumph and prestige from catching the king of the woods. Unfortunately for Robert, his white heart is caught by wolves and eaten, causing the king to get angry, drink a ton of wine, and then decide he's gonna hunt a massive boar instead. The boar gets the best of the very drunk Robert and wounds the king fatally with its tusks. Don't worry, this is all coming back. We're not done with this boar scenario. Viserys is given a choice here. 
Does he continue his discussion or screaming match with Rhaenyra and continue to work out their problems without marriage and duty? Or does Viserys go to catch the White Heart? Otto pushes Viserys strongly towards going on the hunt, mentioning that it is a sign important from the gods about baby Aegon's name day if it can be caught. Subtly trying to push Viserys and Rhaenyra apart as well by not letting them talk out their problems so the king will eventually disinherit her. Viserys chooses the path of superstition, once again choosing the world of the supernatural over family member just like he did with Emma. Queen Emma sort of hangs over this episode like a ghost haunting father and daughter. Rhaenyra, abandoned by her father for an albino stag of destiny, grabs a horse and tears off into the woods with Crispin Cole in fast pursuit. Cole finally catches Rhaenyra before she accidentally charges into a river and the two talk. As it turns out, Crispin has stepped in to become Rhaenyra's new only friend. Rhaenyra explains her anger that she feels like she was only made the heir so that she could be sold at a higher price by her father for some lord like Jason Lannister. She does not believe Viserys is serious about her remaining heir and feels like she has no control in her life. Crispin then offers to kill Jason to break the mood because <laughs> murder is funny and Rhaenyra convinces Crispin to not go back and stay out in the woods with her. I am sure nobody will start a rumor about that. Their conversation is very reminiscent of the one Mysaria and Damon had in the last episode about how Rhaenyra does not realize how lucky and privileged her position is. Rhaenyra says that she is a toothless dragon, ignored by her father and has no say in her life, an heir in name only. Crispin reminds her that with her offhanded choice to raise him to the Kingsguard, she gave his family a level of honor and prestige they had never known before and personally changed his life. Now they're kind of saying different things here. Rhaenyra wants determination of her fate not the ability to make more Knights of the Kingsguard, but it is a good message about how Rhaenyra underestimates the power she already has and how she can use it. This is also very similar to the conversation between Tyrion and Jon Snow at the Night's Watch when Jon complains about how much being him totally sucks and Tyrion reminds Jon, you know, it could be a lot worse. This emotional beat of being marginalized and ignored by Viserys is just one of the many things that the show is pointing out Rhaenyra and Daemon both have in common. The royal hunt is closing in on the White Heart, with Viserys deciding to smell the stag's droppings with his hand that is infected. Gross and unsanitary. The lead hunter and Otto remind Viserys about how important the White Heart is, Otto specifically linking the animal's appearance to Prince Aegon, and how it appears for his name day is a sign important of great things to come for the prince. Okay, well, they're not reminding Viserys, they're reminding you. They're making sure you're paying attention. It's also interesting to note that despite no one really knowing Viserys has dragon dreams nor his secret of ice and fire, they have picked up that they can easily manipulate the king by just invoking prophecy, magic, and destiny. Unfortunately, the hunt fails and everyone heads back to camp while Viserys gets very drunk. Straight up Robert Baratheon drunk. The first to approach him is Lord Jason Lannister, who despite getting rejected by Rhaenyra, decides to give Viserys a great spear made by his personal weaponsmiths. Hmm, a Lannister giving the king a spear in order to kill a stag. I wonder if there's any kind of hidden meaning or callbacks there. Jason follows it up by pressing for the marriage, no doubt thinking that if he can convince Viserys, it will not really matter if Rhaenyra wants to marry him. The Lord of Casterly Rock then tries to sell the king on how valuable an ally he would be, which Viserys bristles at. I found this all a bit funny, as Viserys clearly thought the same thing when he was arranging the match, but is now angry at Jason for saying the quiet part out loud, that yes, he is actually selling his daughter to the highest bidder, and feels a bit guilty about it. Then Jason being a doofus and not reading the situation also brings up that many expect Viserys to disinherit Rhaenyra which sends the king into a rage, accusing Lord Jason of possibly starting a rebellion against his heir. Now I'm no expert on dealing with kings, but trying to convince a very drunk and upset looking king to sell his daughter to you for a spear and gold? Not a great strategy Jason. Otto is next up and tries with a bit more tact to say more or less exactly the same thing, although he does try to offer a solution marry the 17-year-old Rhaenyra to her two-year-old half-brother Aegon, who has not mastered using a spoon yet. Take note here that, once again, Otto is abandoning ideals for personal gain. Targaryen incest and sibling marriages are greatly frowned upon by the Faith of the Seven and his family. The Faith started a war against King Aenys that only ended after King Maegor killed tens of thousands only decades earlier over this exact same kind of proposal. 
But now, Otto's okay with it because it will allow his grandson to become a king without a war, just like he was okay with letting Rhaenyra become the heir because he was afraid of Daemon. Viserys laughs at Otto and the hand drops it, for now. And we get the last visitor of the drunk king, the master of laws, Lord Lionel Strong. Lionel takes a very clever tact here, not asking for Viserys to do anything for him like marry his son to Rhaenyra, nor Otto trying to set up a toddler and a 17-year-old. Instead, Lord Strong listens to the very upset Viserys about his problems and consoles the king that he's not the first Targaryen king to have problems with his children, particularly his daughters. Lionel's offering emotional support and massaging Viserys' ego, which has been greatly wounded during the day. Lionel offers his advice, and Viserys quips that he thinks Lionel's about to ask for his son Harwin, aka Breakbones, the strongest knight in the Seven Kingdoms to marry Rhaenyra. Whether or not Lionel is actually about to do that, he wisely declines the opportunity and instead offers a more sound, unencumbered advice. Lionel points out that all of Viserys' current problems are because he chose Alicent Hightower over Lena Valarian. A subtle jab at the architect of that strategy, Otto Hightower, and offers a way to solve all the king's problems in one savvy move. Marry Rhaenyra to Laenor Valarian, Corlys' son. He's a dragon rider, he's Valyrian, he's the heir to an immensely powerful house. It will bring Corlys back into the fold and it will fix his mistake with Allison. Well, not all of his problems, Rhaenyra will still be furious to be sold for ships instead of gold. However, as Lord Strong is hinting, Corlys and Rhaenys and Laenor can protect Rhaenyra's claim to the throne. It's an option that lets her possibly keep the throne if Aegon and Otto eventually try something, rather than someone like Jason Lannister who would probably die drowning in wine before he would challenge the Hightower. Viserys stumbles down from his throne and stops to pat Lionel on the shoulder and literally leans on him for a moment. Viserys is starting to believe that he can only rely on good sound advice from Lord Lionel Strong among all the other Lickspittle lords, and that Lionel is the one he can lean on for support. And this is the really clever thing about Lord Lionel Strong. He, like his son Laris, often gets overlooked at court. While he does own Harrenhal, it's a white elephant of a holding as the ruined fortress eats money and gets conquered every time a war breaks out. It has few incomes or vassals, so Lord Strong is not powerful like, say, Lord Hightower or Lannister. But what Lionel has that so few of his peers do is intelligence in forward thinking. For instance, taking the job of Master of Laws. That position on the small council is often a thankless one. High on duties, low on prestige, and not one easy to profit off of. Usually it's one that gets pawned off on some useless counselor or sibling for political gain. Lionel, though, takes the job and does well at it because of this exact moment on the hunt. Its main benefit is that it lets him have the ear of the king and demonstrate his value, which as Otto Hightower can attest, a great prize in the realm. Lionel can be the voice of reason and reliable so that when the opportunity arises, he can advance his and his family's standings. Unlike Otto, Lionel has aligned his personal interests with the interests of the crown and Viserys so that his good advice always helps them both. And what Lionel has done here is exactly that. By turning down the opportunity to marry Harwin to Rhaenyra and instead offering a match with a sea snake, Lord Strong surprises the king by appearing not only selfless, but genuinely interested in helping. Which of course reflects poorly on Otto, who just minutes earlier tried another self-serving match that would mostly just help himself. While everyone else at this hunt is going after Rhaenyra's hand, Lionel has cleverly identified another prey to hunt that no one else realizes might be vulnerable, the Hand of the King. By pointing out how Lionel was right previously about Lena, he's also pointing out how Otto is wrong and self-serving to push Allison as a marriage. And Otto is doing so again, Lionel opening Viserys' eyes just a little bit about how much his Hand of the King is the leech Daemon claimed he was. Lionel's making a play for the Hand of the King, and this is the opening shot. Otto has for years been trying to keep Daemon and Corlys from replacing him. His focus blinded him to the real threat on the small council, the non-threatening Master of Laws. Rhaenyra and Crispin are sitting around a campfire still avoiding return to face the court and her father. Rhaenyra asks Crispin if he thinks the realm will accept her as queen, and after thinking about his answer a bit too hard, he answers, I have no choice but to, princess. Which is a very funny sentiment. Book readers will know why, and hot D enjoyers, remember this moment here. You'll get the joke later. However, out of nowhere, a feral hog attacks in the darkness, ragdolling the Kingsguard knight and then charging at Rhaenyra. My god, it's Robert Baratheon all over again. However, instead of being gored to death, Sir Crispin stabs the boar with his sword. But wait, there's a jump scare, and the boar isn't quite dead. 
Rhaenyra pulls out a dagger and savagely stabs the animal over and over, covering herself in its blood, getting out all the anger at her life one swing at a time, and also demonstrating for the sharp-eyed viewer that when attacked, Rhaenyra will fight back with fire and blood, and also her strength that she survived the very same thing that killed King Robert Baratheon. Then we get an excellent use of the Kuleshov effect as the camera cuts from Rhaenyra stabbing a boar to death to King Viserys, drunk standing in front of a fire. A bit on the nose, but a good hint for the audience that Rhaenyra is taking out her frustration at Viserys in particular while she stabs the boar. Viserys, on brand for a guy standing in front of a campfire alone, is incredibly drunk and when Alicent walks up starts talking about his dreams. If only he had a guitar to play Wonderwall with, it would really complete the campfire vibe. Viserys vents about how it was a dream of a son that led to Emma Aaron's death, and how the botched decision has ruined his life. You know, not great things to tell your teenage bride and soon-to-be mother of two. A, he's willing to sacrifice you and your life for another child of destiny, and B, that he regrets remarrying specifically you. Alicent can't feel super great at that, but don't worry, Viserys is going to explain. Many in my line being dragon riders. Very few among us have been dreamers. What is the power of a dragon? It's the power of prophecy. When Rhaenyra was a child, I saw it in a dream. As vivid as these flames, I saw it. A male babe, born to me, wearing the conqueror's crown. And I so wanted it to be true. Be a dreamer myself. Allison is now in the inner circle of people that know Targaryens have prophetic dreams and Viserys in particular. Allison is a little shocked and Viserys ends his drunken ramble by wondering if he was wrong about Balon and Rhaenyra. That maybe his dream was really about their child Aegon. Just as Viserys is about to have another campfire breakthrough, the hunting horde sounds and he places his hand on her pregnant belly. This is actually very intriguing information about the Targaryens and their relationship to prophecy and dragons. Stop me if you've heard this before on my channel, but I am very interested in how prophecy shapes their decisions and also how it works. The new information here is that Viserys is revealing how often Targaryens actually have dragon dreams like his ancestors Daenys and Aegon the Conqueror. Viserys claims that the gift of prophecy is less common than dragon riding. Clever fans may have made the connection here as well to green seers and skin changers. In A Song of Ice and Fire, we are told that green seers are a subset of skin changers, a very rare one too, with their gifts going far beyond being able to invade the minds of other living beings. Green seers can see across time and space using the weirwoods, and here that same relationship is being established. Dragon dreamers are more rare than dragon riders, and not only that, but they can see the future. I'd be fascinated as well if it's the same percentage, a thousand to one. Although I don't think it is, if you look at the Targaryen family, it seems to be a lot more common. But if it's anywhere close, this could imply a similarity between the two gifts, or a connection between Greensight and Dragon Dreams. This also may get its own video along with Laris. This is some very spicy lore to get. Of course, the relevant point for Hot D, which is, you know, a TV show about people, is how this demonstrates the way that these dreams wreck the lives of the dreamer. I talked about this previously in the video in the corner, but you the viewer should be paying very close attention to this moment of a drunken king rambling. This is the second time in three episodes that the show is trying to teach you how dragon dreams work and how dangerous they are to try and chase and to make them real. It causes the dreamers to ignore logic and reason, making seemingly wild and random decisions their subjects just cannot understand making them seem mad. Much like Game of Thrones showing us the White Walkers in the opening of the series, Hot D is going to enormous lengths to make sure you follow the pattern of dragon dreaming. It's going to be messy, and it's going to be unclear, and possibly push the realm into all-out war. All because Viserys had a vivid dream of a child with a crown that he just could not forget. Despite the horns blowing, the White Heart has escaped Viserys' hunters. Again, the show is giving us the idea that his counselors and servants are you know, not all that great. Starting at the top from Otto to Maester Melos, all the way down to these hunters, is being pointed at by the show as something to pay attention to. Instead of a white heart, they have caught a large but common brown stag. Harwin Strong, along with several of the hunters, have restrained the stag so that Viserys can claim the kill. Lord Jason hands over the Spear of Destiny, and Viserys takes two stabs to kill the stag, 
while it screams horribly. Viserys here is clearly reflecting on the loss of the White Heart and how maybe that means Aegon should not be his heir after all. Maybe his son isn't the prince that was promised and Rhaenyra was the right choice all along. I don't know, probably could have figured that out without killing a stag, but also, as the wonderful Shakespeare of Thrones frequent guest on this channel brought up on Twitter, Viserys explicitly is reenacting here the death of Queen Emma, the screaming of the animal as it is cut open while Viserys' minions hold it in place, killed for the sake of a dream and prophecy. Viserys chased down this prophecy of the White Heart, trying to make his dream of a son on the Iron Throne come true, and once again he finds him staring down an innocent that he doesn't want to kill, but he doesn't see another choice. He feels his hands are bound by the weight of his crown, his dreams, destiny, more importantly his ego. And once again, just like Emma, even though he got his dream wrong, Viserys once again calls for a blade. The stag dying is extremely off-putting, with Viserys failing to kill with one blow and having to be shown by the hunter where to actually strike to finish off the animal. This drives home the idea for the viewer and possibly Viserys as well that he doesn't actually know how to do anything or doesn't do it particularly well. The brown stag being a metaphor for his kingship so far. He feels like he's in control, a king making tough decisions and guiding his realm through history, but instead he's being led around like a fool. They're making him feel like he's in charge. In actuality, Otto has been controlling Viserys the same way this hunt is being controlled. At the end of it, he's been handed a spear and told how to use it on an animal that has already been caught for him. And then he can't even do his part right, requiring a second blow to kill it. His decisions at court are no different. Otto closely controls what Viserys sees, who he talks to, and what decisions he's even allowed to make. And Viserys may have woken up to this a little bit, especially seeing how Otto's predictions about the White Heart and its meaning have totally fallen apart. We are then shown something magical, full of destiny. While on a high hill overlooking the camp and the hunting grounds, Rhaenyra and Sir Crispin are unexpectedly visited by the very same White Heart that eluded the king's hunters. The meaning here is fairly obvious, with the White Heart being said in this episode that its appearance is a thing of destiny and fate. Otto specifically saying that whoever should find it, the White Heart will mark them as the true heir. He means Aegon, but instead the stag appears to Rhaenyra, who wasn't even looking for it. The show telling us here that quite clearly Rhaenyra is the one that should rule, no matter how many times stuffy lords say that women can't do the job or Viserys ignores her. And also, once again, that Viserys has missed the truth of his dream. The meanings don't stop there either, third in a running theme of Rhaenyra for her connections to nature and magic. Her first scene in this episode, she was sitting beneath a weirwood tree reading. Even if she doesn't know it, we know that the weirwoods are the vessels of the old gods aka the children of the forest who use the trees to watch humanity. Previously we saw Ned Stark doing the same thing. Also Rhaenyra rides off into the woods alone with Sir Crispin, seemingly at home with the deep woods which are the traditional home of the children of the forest. Specifically in the pact with the first men, the children secured these forests for themselves for all time. While Viserys and his men stumble through the domain of the children as trespassers, Rhaenyra feels at home amongst the trees and nature. Then we get the boar attack, which in this context could be seen as a challenge from the wilds and the deep woods for the heir of the Iron Throne. A wild boar is an incredibly dangerous animal, and we know that they killed one monarch in this universe. Instead of ending up gored by the boar, Rhaenyra and Crispin fight off the animal while Rhaenyra wears its blood like a trophy, a sort of blessing or baptism from the tree gods, who very much love blood magic and blood sacrifices as much as any Valyrian blood mage. And then what happens after the boar attack with Rhaenyra covered in blood? She's rewarded by the White Heart approaching her. Now I'm not saying the children definitely engineered this scenario by sending them using their skin changing powers, but I am not saying they didn't. And the meaning of these scenes work just as well if there isn't weird tree elves behind the eyes of the two animals. This contrasts neatly with Viserys, who can't kill a stag cleanly that has been tied up and cannot move. There's no danger for Viserys there, just a formality and he screws it up. However, Rhaenyra, when sent a true dangerous challenge from the woods and the boar, is able to kill her attacker. And not only that, rather than killing the White Heart, she lets it go, showing wisdom and mercy. Clear messaging from the writers about how Rhaenyra is the one that deserves to rule. This is also an elegant way of demonstrating the previous scene with Viserys struggling with prophecy. He told Alicent that he tried to have that dream again, and also that his desire to make Balon be that dream led to Emma's death. The message being that the more you try to make dragon dreams come true, the more they run from you. In this instance, exactly like the White Heart, Viserys believes it would be a sign of Aegon to make his choice of heir for him. The entire court goes out to catch the damn thing, and despite all that effort, it will not be captured. It slipped away like a dream in the morning. 
but the White Heart didn't disappear, it appeared anyway. But not to Viserys, Rhaenyra instead, who didn't even want to find it nor thought it meant anything about her future. And that is the nature of prophecy we learn from characters like Maggie the Frog and the Ghost of High Heart. These dreams will always come true, but in their own time and in their own way. Trying to hunt them like Viserys does only leads to disaster. I guess unless you're Danis the Dreamer. That one time it worked. Rhaenyra returns to camp at last with Sir Crispin, the boar they killed being dragged as a prize for all the lords to see. But Rhaenyra is wearing another prize, the boar's blood that she has refused to wash out of her clothes, hair, or skin, letting every shocked lord she walks by know that she personally helped kill the animal. And yes, all the lords are shocked and disgusted. Well, save two. We see off to the side that the previously mentioned Harwin Strong is skinning a rabbit to share with his younger brother Laris, and the two brothers look up to see Rhaenyra walking by. Laris is much more passive and appraising than the other lords, sticking to his characterization of being observant and that being more important than having quick responses. But you can tell his attention is fully engaged, looking at Rhaenyra but keeping a passive look on his face. Harwin, though, is the complete opposite. The strongest knight in the Seven Kingdoms see the princess covered in blood instead of being grossed out like the dandy Jason Lannister, cracks a wide smile and nods quite flirtily at Rhaenyra. Well, I say flirtily, he somehow turns into Daru Naharis here and makes the weirdest smile and nod I've ever seen. I am not sure how Ryan Kor thought this face was a suggestive one, but you know what? There it is. Honestly, it's very similar to the one Tormund shot at Brienne of Tarth over and over again. And much like Tormund, Harwin has a real northern sensibility to him as a person, as do all the Strong family, as I detailed in my theory about the connections with the Starks. Harwin is a guy who loves battle and blood, fighting and melees, getting his nickname Breakbones for his habit of seriously injuring his opponents and tourneys with his immense strength. We also saw Harwin on the hunt being one of the hunters personally holding back the stag, showing that he is actually a real hunter, not one of these lordlings playing at it. He's also skinning a rabbit while making eyes at Rhaenyra, an interesting choice. Harwin is very rough around the edges, a bad boy, someone very different than anyone else at court, and a strong through and through. A Targaryen princess covered in boar's blood may actually be Harwin's ideal woman, and now the two have noticed each other. Perhaps Lionel was very smart to not have to suggest a marriage between Harwin and Rhaenyra. Two may hit it off on their own. The court returns to the Red Keep, and we get two back-to-back -back scenes with Alicent. First, she goes to her father before the king. Otto, having totally struck out on getting Viserys to disinherit Rhaenyra, turns to Alicent as his next best option and instructs her how she needs to get the job done. Honestly, very similar to how Lord Hobart leaned on Otto. However, even here in private, Allison sticks up for Rhaenyra, arguing back against Otto and saying that all the lords promised to serve their future queen. Otto makes a pretty tortured argument about why the men actually support Aegon, how they were also happy to be there and all turned out for the name day celebration, which Alicent probably sees through as the main person cheering for Aegon was her own uncle Hobart. And most of the lords were not actually there for Prince Aegon, but for Rhaenyra's hand or the opportunity to suck up to Viserys during a hunt. The scene also connects back with Viserys and Lionel growing closer, as here the Hand is admitting tacitly that his ability to influence Viserys is possibly waning. He not only couldn't get Viserys to name Aegon his heir, he couldn't even sell the marriage between the siblings. Otto is starting to lose control of his key to power and needs Alicent to do his job for him. The irony of a guy like Otto following his big speech about how women can't rule and then having to ask his teenage daughter to do his job for him. Alicent does go to Viserys, but despite her instructions, does not talk at all about disinheriting Rhaenyra. Instead, she tries to get Rhaenyra and Viserys to make up and talk to each other the same as she did in previous episodes. It also gives Viserys advice on how he should handle getting Rhaenyra to marry, suggesting giving her a choice to make a match so she believes it was freely picked. Much like the Kingsguard selection, Rhaenyra feeling so proud that she picked Kristen Cole among the knights. But of course, she only chose from among those Otto and Harold Westerling pre-screened for her. This is savvy advice from Alicent, although may have accidentally tipped the hand of Otto by telling Viserys the very same strategy that he uses to control the king. Alicent also makes a bold move and convinces Viserys that he should help out Daemon and Corlys. They go basking forth, but Alicent makes a very... Lionel Strong-like appeal to Viserys, asking him whether or not the realm would be helped by the Stepstones being won. And that argument gets through, convincing the king that he will send aid to Daemon and Corlys, also to be seen as a good brother and a family man. 
which he currently isn't. This is a particularly huge moment for Allison as she breaks from Otto and outplays the hand of the king. We don't get to see his reaction in this episode, but for sure, Otto is going to be furious to learn that someone got to Viserys and changed his mind. What a surprise it may be to learn that it was his own daughter working against him instead of doing his bidding. Rhaenyra isn't the only rebellious daughter in this episode defying her overbearing father. The drama between king and princess comes to a head, and in an important location to the two of them, the small council room. Rhaenyra is summoned and Viserys tells everyone else to leave. Rhaenyra can be forgiven for being a bit nervous about this. The last time Viserys obviously pulled rank as king on a family member, they were then banished and disinherited. Clearly that's what's on Rhaenyra's mind, but instead Viserys only wants to talk to her. Rhaenyra pointedly sits in the seat of the hand of the king and Viserys does not object. The two of them have a frank conversation about the duty they have to each other, the realm, and their family. The argument breaks down into Rhaenyra feeling like Viserys does not want her as his heir, he only wants to use her as a political tool and plans to replace her with Aegon as soon as he can. Viserys argues back saying that he's not going to replace her, but she still has to marry as high lords and royals, they have to use these marriages to keep themselves strong. He says it is their duty and Rhaenyra pins the king down with the bubbling unsaid problem between them. Viserys did not marry for duty with Alicent, so why should Rhaenyra be expected to do what he could not? Viserys unexpectedly agrees when faced with his own hypocrisy and softens his stance. And then he makes a new argument. Viserys tells Rhaenyra to not marry for his reign, but for her own. If she chooses a powerful husband, it will make her eventual rise to the throne less fraught by making it too dangerous to fight her. But also that it is her choice to go out into Westeros and marry whoever she wants. Viserys here trying to follow Alicent's advice, allowing Rhaenyra to choose her husband, but making sure he impresses the importance of choosing a powerful alliance above all else. He's not directly saying go marry Laenor, but the implication is that the dragon rider would be a wise choice. It seems that the troubles between king and princess are done, at least for the moment. However, it is important to realize what actually just happened. Viserys here is being a good father, relenting on a forced marriage to his very unhappy daughter. That's great. However, as a king, he just made sure that he's going to have a lot of unhappy lords on his hands, and powerful ones too. The reason being that Rhaenyra is going to be courting suitors, which means tournaments and lords competing for her hand. Who she chooses will anger the boys and men that she spurns along with the rest of their family. You would hope that all of those going for the royal marriage will take their rejections maturely, but I think we all know better about pride of lords, especially with the stakes of the throne on the line. And they are not likely to forget being rejected anytime soon, whereas if Viserys had chosen for Rhaenyra, he takes the blame for annoying his vassals. No one could be angry at Rhaenyra, she had no choice in it. Now those same lords will still be angry long after Viserys dies. Broken hearts and spurned dreams of power and dragons will linger. The allies Rhaenyra may need one day to keep the Iron Throne may not be there because of being rejected years earlier for this marriage. Jason Lannister surely being the first among them. Rhaenyra was right to reject Jason, but he will not forget being turned down by her nor how Viserys threatened him. Also, it's easy here for Viserys to be the good father, promising Rhaenyra that she will never be disinherited and that she's free to marry whoever she wants. However, knowing Rhaenyra, she's probably going to push the whomever she wants to the breaking point as teenagers and especially this princess is known to do. What if she brings home that bard who is singing to her? Or someone horrible, like a Frey? Or maybe a Kingsguard knight that she's very close with? or an uncle that dotes on her. Viserys may really come to regret the choices she will make and forgot the important part of Alicent's advice. It wasn't that she could actually choose anyone to marry, but that she believed she did by narrowing the options the same as the Kingsguard decision she made. There's a world of bad choices for Rhaenyra to make, and Viserys just opened the door to all of them. We go back to the Stepstones and there's an argument among Corlys, Laenor, and Vaemon Velaryon. They are down to 18 ships, 700 foot soldiers, their mercenaries have deserted, and they have two weeks of food left. It looks like they will have to surrender unless they can somehow get the Triarchy to leave the caves, which Lainor points out they will not do without a flesh sacrifice. Continuing the theme of the episode of a blood sacrifice being paid, Vaemon talks of rebelling against Daemon and leaving while the prince is currently roasting pirates on his dragon. Corlys tells him to shut up. Daemon lands wordlessly and he is visibly frustrated. It's at this point the rest of the plot catches up. Viserys' messenger shows up with the letter for Daemon. The rogue prince reads it going from bemused to despondent straight to anger, 
and then tries to kill the messenger by bashing him to death with a helmet. We can hear the full transcript of the message and can kinda guess why Damien is furious at the letter from his brother. Brother, I have ordered 10 ships and 2,000 men to set sail from King's Landing to join the effort in the Stepstones. Though time and circumstance have seen us estranged, know that it is not my desire to see you fail in your cause. It is instead my hope that this aid will deliver the victory that has thus far evaded us. I shall pray nightly to the gods for your safe return. It is a kindness that Viserys has now sent troops and ships and provisions to help Daemon, but it's about four years too late. Daemon has been ignored by his brother this whole time. The attention and camaraderie he wants with the king denied. Damon doesn't want ships and troops, no more than he actually wanted the dragon egg on Dragonstone. What he wants is to feel close and important to Viserys, be by his side and loved back the way he clearly loves his brother. He wants to be partners in ruling the kingdom. And this letter, which by the way Viserys, maybe don't remind Damon he's a failure in your letter, is a bit missing these points. The problem for Damon is not about the victory for a bunch of useless windswept rocks. It's that he would do anything for Viserys, and what Damon does next shows that the relationship may be beyond repair now, as Damon rose to Bloodstone alone. The rogue prince raises a white flag and holds up his sword in surrender, daring the pirates to emerge from their caves to take their prize. Which they do, although warily. The crab feeder and his men sense a trap, but just as Laner suggested, Damon's life is too juicy a prize not to gobble. Damon lures them in and then springs the trap, sort of grabbing back Dark Sister and then making a mad dash through the dunes, killing everyone in his way. Clearly, he's trying to reach Kragas Drahar before the arrows can take him down, which they do. Damon's plot armor runs out and he gets hit with three arrows having to shelter under the broken hull of a ship. At this point, seeing Damon wounded and on his last legs, every single one of the Triarchy pirates rushes out and the hammer meets the anvil. The Valarian troops follow behind Damon in secret and now charge the pirates. Not only that, Lenor on his dragon sea smoke is finally able to rout the archers and pirates in strafing runs over Bloodstone. At long last, Damon is able to claim victory as he catches his enemy Kragas Crab Feeder, chasing him into the caves only to drag out half the former Admiral's corpse, dripping in his blood. Much like Rhaenyra, Damon is born again in blood and slaughter. Although Damon is actually covered in grayscale blood and I don't know if Valyrians are immune to it or not. This is all a big moment for Damon as well. In the opening shots, Damon Caraxes step on a soldier praising the prince and asking for a salvation only to get squished instead. Showing how Damon's problem being a leader is that he's only there for himself. He does not see his underlings as important. This war is about the glory of Damon alone and they're just tools to make that happen. Here though, we see Damon without his fancy armor or dragon lowering himself to the level of his troops and mere mortals. His life is actually on the line for the rest of them. Damon will die on that beach with those same troops he stepped on and ignored, or they will win together. It's an important lesson for the rogue prince to learn about how to be an effective leader. The same one Mysaria tried to tell him in the last episode, finally landing three years later. For as much as Damon has said that Viserys is a bad king, Damon wasn't doing much better in the Stepstones. This is a moment of triumph for Damon, but it's also important to look at what he did and why. Remember, there were no Targaryen soldiers wearing the three-headed dragon charging across the dunes. Damon specifically did not wait for reinforcements. He set out the Bloodstone alone to spurn the help Viserys was sending. To prove that he does not need Viserys and his help anymore, Damon goes forward with Laenor's suicidal plan. He does this because of the festering wound in his heart Damon now feels has driven him to the point that he would rather die there on Bloodstone than wait and accept Viserys' help. He wasn't going to have his war and glory stolen by his brother. This is his battle, this is his war. If Damon can beat the Crab Feeder, it will be because of himself and the alliance he forged with Corlys and the sword in his own hand. When Damon returns to King's Landing, the realm may be surprised to find that the rogue prince who left three years ago after pouting on Dragonstone is really not the same one who returned. He has been born anew like Rhaenyra, baptized in blood. But after being banished, stripped of his inheritance, banished again, and left to fight a war to help the realm and ignored, I don't think he's going to be quite as compassionate anymore. He's truly going to become the rogue prince. 
Overall, I thought it was a fantastic episode. The different arcs of the episode all tied back into each other, the prophecy and dreams bashing against reality. How Viserys is being shown consistently to the audience as a man tortured by his choices and failings, the more he tries to tighten his grip on the vision he saw, the more it eludes him. And Rhaenyra, without trying and unknowingly making those dreams come true. The White Heart working not only as a symbol of pride, but the divine crossing through to the material world. The imagery was phenomenal as well. These are parts of Westeros we have never seen before, nor really done on this scale. You really get a feeling of how just outside of King's Landing, there's this entire world of deep woods and mystery and magic that not even the Dragon Kings can control. The battle scenes in the dragons were everything I would hope for from a huge budget like House of the Dragon. Exciting, well shot, tense, the main characters even got hurt, something out of a big budget movie. And of course, Sea Smoke looked amazing soaring over the cliffs, distinct from the other dragons and really his own character. Also, the show introduced to us two major characters in the brothers, Laris and Harwin Strong, but not having them obviously marked by the language of film as to what they will become. Laris is barely noticeable, slipping into the background in shadows seemingly innocuous, but far more than he seems. Harwin as well, with the scene of him restraining the stag and his reaction to Rhaenyra could be mistaken for almost an extra. But when he sees Rhaenyra covered in boar's blood, you get a real sense of the man far more than if the show just told us about him through filler dialogue. He is the blunt tool contrasted against Laris's subtle knife. The continued focus on prophecy also remains a delight for me, as we're getting more and more information from Viserys about the freehold dragon riders and dragon dreamers than we've ever gotten before from the TV adaptation. They're really putting this, and of course the subtle hinting of the watchful eyes of the old gods, into the core of the show where they belong. They're not abstract weirdness there just for kicks or to confuse characters, they are grappling with the questions of destiny and reality. Merging the ethereal and physical is one thing that makes A Song of Ice and Fire great. There are some lowlights, however. For one thing, the drastic time skips and the exposition they're putting in is really rushing by quickly. Huge things you'd expect to see like Damon's battle against the crab feeder or Rhaenyra's reaction to Allison's first pregnancy and birth, the intervening years of how Viserys treated his heir. We can infer much of these things by the way their relationships stand now, but inferring isn't always as satisfying as seeing. Of course, they have to do it this way, with choosing to show us a 30-year prologue more or less before they get into the main story they're going to tell. It has, however, turned a few too many moments and characters into bullet points, checking off things they want us to see before we just go forwards in time. It's also not giving us enough time for a lot of these characters to really feel developed or care about them beyond the core cast. Their everyday interactions, the small moments of dialogue that aren't the most notable moments from their lives. This of course will definitely resolve as we get closer to the end of this season and we go into seasons two, three, and maybe four. And I totally understand why they're doing it this way. It allows the show to demonstrate for the audience how all these factions formed and what were the moments in time when boulders were dropped and changed the course of destiny. But through three episodes, we have jumped through roughly 17 years and it is a lot to take in. And there have been casualties of this as well, the most glaring being Kragus Drahar. The crab feeder got this massive amount of buildup through the first two episodes, being seen as the primary villain of this series. Grotesque, merciless, a constant thorn in the side of the crown and Damon. They even made a sponsored hashtag for him on Twitter. For three years, he's apparently been fighting and winning a war against dragons, remarkable in itself. And then he's on screen for what feels like only a couple minutes, nailing another soldier to a post, nodding a few times, checking the skies for dragons, and then he's gone. The buildup of this character really does not match what we saw, almost like there was a lot of Stepstones footage that got cut late in the process to make room in their already tight narrative constraints. Obviously, Damon isn't going to forget him. He's carrying the hammer in the next episode when Damon swaggers into court. But the audience will. Rather than a bogeyman leering over Westeros with his army of crabs, he was dealt with faster than a Doctor Who villain. And now there's nothing really to fill that place for presumably quite a while. His part and the battle are done. We're going to go back to the drama of King's Landing for quite some time it looks like. These three years are going to be primary formative experiences for Damon and the rest of the show and we just haven't really seen it. We've been told it but that isn't always the same. Although in their defense in Fire and Blood Kragas Drahar gets approximately three sentences in the book before he's killed by Damon. So him barely showing up then instantly dying is honestly faithful to the lore. 
The other criticism I have is their ordering of the information about prophecy so far. In interviews, Ryan Condal has said they wanted the Aegon the Conqueror dream reveal to be like the White Walkers in the beginning of A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. This bomb dropped on the audience that then gets ignored for quite a while. And that's good, I like reusing that structure. What I don't like though is how the characters are ignoring it and how it's confusing for a lot of fans, especially those commenting on my videos. Hey guys. The key of the White Walkers returning in the opening of A Song of Ice and Fire is that everyone who knows about it shortly dies or then ignores it. It's almost lost information, a feeling of tragedy that if only the realm took this information more seriously before it doomed so many. With Aegon's dream though, as far as I can tell, Viserys dropped that information on Rhaenyra four years ago now, and they have not spoken of it since. Which is weird, because their arguments about duty and what they own to the realm have this obvious information sitting right behind it. It's not just about court politics and making sure their family stays powerful, that it's about saving the world from darkness. Except that doesn't come up. We don't even really know if Rhaenyra believed Viserys or in that prophecy. I've seen the upcoming episode trailer and it looks like they'll be talking about it again with Viserys' dagger. That would be good, but that doesn't really get through this flaw. There's really no explanation offered for why this doesn't come up again or factor into their arguments. It's so obvious that it should. Also, the way they're structuring the prophecy demonstrations is that they dropped the bomb about Aegon and are now showing the audience how it works through Viserys. He had that one dream years ago and now he has interpreted the meaning of it three different ways and how chasing it has led him to grief and ruin as a person. This is, of course, meant to tell the audience about Aegon's struggles with his dreams as well as his descendants. However, to suggest a fix, I would have put the Song of Ice and Fire reveal later in the season after using the rest of the season to build up to it. Seeing how Viserys takes these seriously, showing how they function, showing them coming true, and then hinting at this great secret Viserys keeps to himself, and then after all that build up revealing it is the Song of Ice and Fire and Aegon's motivation for conquering Westeros. That could have been a really great reveal. But as it was used in the first episode, it left a lot of fans confused and annoyed at what they were seeing. And part of the blame lies with Game of Thrones. They took out a lot of focus on dreams and prophecy that drives the plot and character motivations all throughout the books. This sudden inclusion and increased focus, well, relatively, has created an unexpected backlash of people crying out, you know, that it's a retcon and the show just made it up to justify season 8 and on and on and on. Maybe some of that would have been toned down with a slow burn, but who knows, maybe not. It seems that there's a decent amount of fans out there who just do not want the prophetic parts of the books to be as important and hot D as they should be. And um, I guess good luck with that, I suppose. Overall though, I did really love this episode, my favorite of the three so far, and it's a really good sign important of things to come that they continue to place the worlds of magic and fantasy right next to the human heart. More than anything, it caught my attention and held it. I could not look away. Hopefully they can capture that for the rest of the season too, and judging by how many of my friends in the fandom who left after season 8 are now writing long threads and essays and coming back and making content about it, I think it's safe to say I'm not alone. It's really good. I'd like to say thank you as well to all my lovely patrons. If you too would like to have access to exclusive content, sneak previews, our wonderful Slack community, or just want to support me in this kind of insanity, sign up at patreon.com slash geomagician. And thank you specifically to Seneschal Ramona Zamfir, Grandmaster Chris B, Sue the Fury, Grandmistress of Whispers, Archmaster Mullen, Brendan Beefish, Right Farter of the Fandom Truth, Aaron M, the Executive Assistant to the Slack, Jared W, KCD, Lady May, Leathery Wings, Maester Mary, and Nonacast. <laughs>